Hello, everyone, and welcome to Midcast, an interview series featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I'm your host, Manar Adli, founder and editor-in-chief of Mid Press News. We recently launched our citizen activist membership campaign. So as we face shadow banning and suppression from big tech giants, we're calling on you to join our campaign to sustain our anti-war watchdog journalism that challenges the status quo. So I hope you'll join today. We'll be linking to that campaign in the description and in the comments. Today, we're taking a step back and talking about polarization and the seemingly increasing difficulty we have in having conversations in debates or debates. From the 2016 election and the rise of Trump to the January 6th insurrection to the COVID-19 pandemic, and now the Ukraine crisis, it appears that we are losing the ability to hold civil conversations without resorting to backbiting, name-calling, and calls to cancel individuals. Conversations have become so polarized Um, And no thanks to the mainstream corporate media. And everyone watching knows exactly what I'm talking about. In such a polarizing world, we're seeing the anti-war left become victims, victims to this. And I brought on a panel to discuss how we can agree to disagree while uniting on a broader front. Uh, Joining myself and Mitt Press News senior staff writer and podcast producer, um, Alan McLeod, um, are Mickey Huff and Nolan Higdon. Mickey is a professor of social science, history, and journalism at Diablo College, Valley College in California, and the director of the Media Literacy Organization Project Censored. Nolan is a lecturer at Merrill College and the education department of the University of California, Santa Cruz. Their latest book is pub- that was published last month is called um, Let's Agree to Disagree, A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and critical media literacy. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Always good to be here. Okay, so this is a very personal uh, conversation. Uh, Mickey, so many people have been feeling this extreme polarization. And I think we saw the peak of this uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic when people could not agree on the correct response, right? And so I think for myself, I've seen people within even the anti-war movement become victim to this extreme polarization. They're unable to have these kinds of conversations uh, without agreeing to disagree. Um, Cancel culture has now reached the anti-war movement and I never thought I'd see that happen, but it's almost like the first amendment is completely dead and any sort of critical thinking has completely died out. People have become so emotional, like they're so emotionally reactive in these conversations that it's impossible to, you know, agree to disagree. And we're seeing even within our own households, husband, wife, daughter, father, uncle, aunts with your grandmas, people are um, so fractured because of the inability uh, to, you know, agree to disagree. So, Can you explain to us this current phenomenon that's taking place right now? And can we kind of point our finger at the root root cause of it? 
actually, Minar, uh, you know, Nolan and I, and by the way, again, thank you so much for having us on with Mint Press News to have this, what we think is a very important and timely conversation. Obviously, we just wrote a book about it out on Rutledge um, called Let's Agree to Disagree. And the subtitle of that book, I think, is important because the subtitle is A Critical Thinking Guide to Communication, Conflict Management, and Critical Media Literacy. And we see all of those things um, kind of tied together as antidotes for the hyperpartisan, extraordinarily sensationalist and divisive nature of our media ecosystems, our political culture in the United States and beyond. Nolan and I um, are historians by trade. Obviously, we're also journalists and media critics, among other things. And we focus a lot on the United States and U.S. journalism. Um, Alan McLeod, it's always great to be here with you. Um, you have an extraordinary understanding of the media ecosystem, uh, both in Europe and the United States uh, and in South America. And that's like that's a very, very, very important thing. Now, we're not pretending that everybody needs a Ph.D. in this stuff to be able to exercise critical thought and and be media literate citizens. In fact, quite the contrary. We're arguing that it's something that we all are capable of doing if only we're given the opportunities and nothing gives us an opportunity to put these kinds of tools into practice like political conflict, like extraordinary disagreements. Um, and, and by extraordinary, Minar, I'd like to touch upon something that you, you, um, that you mentioned and that you and I know have talked about before. And that's a, a disagreement could be extraordinarily minor in external appearance, yet very extraordinary between two groups or two individuals. And that's kind of where we get into this us versus them mentality. And we allow the differences to become the primary focus, which then distorts and puts out of focus all the other commonalities that we might share with, let's say this again, other human beings, people we're talking about, family members, neighbors, peers, friends, strangers, et cetera, right? But we, there's a human element to it. And I think that we get really, um, it's, and it's ironic that in something like the anti-war left that we would be busy dehumanizing other people who are opposed to imperialism and war um, and then accuse them of mis and disinformation rather than simply use it as an opportunity to try to educate each other about the differences we have and the mistakes we all make. That's, a, that's part of the underscoring of all of the conversation here is that none of us are perfect and none of us are right all the time about everything. And also there may be more than one right answer to the many questions that are being posed. So we're hopeful that the text that we did, the Rutledge text, Let's Agree to Disagree, is a primer for people, particularly in education, to teach these best practices because people don't just become intolerant or become racist. They're not just born that way. These are learned behaviors. Um, people are taught to be nationalistic, and then they're taught that that's somehow the only definition of patriotism, and then that's used as a wedge to drive people uh, apart rather than than together in bigger pictures. So the real purpose of our text is for teaching, not preaching, and to try to get people to engage in these difficult but necessary dialogues about where our differences lie. And Alan, uh, you know, I'm curious to know, you know, what role does the mainstream corporate media play into this? Um, and also with the rise of uh, social media, you know, big tech giants. And I know, Nolan, you talk a lot about that and we can maybe segue to you. But, Alan, I'd like to first talk about the role the mainstream corporate media has played in. Um, you know, I, I think it would be really good to break it down per subject matter. Um, 
like in terms of like the pandemic, I think we saw that take place the most with the polarization. There are so many different uh, ways you could look at this. I mean, I wouldn't, I'm not somebody who pines for the past at all, especially when it comes to the media. But uh, at least a few decades ago, we did have a system of broadcast media, which meant that um, big, uh, big outlets were really trying to reach a wide audience. But then in the 1990s, something happened, and that something was Fox News. Rupert Murdoch came along, the Australian billionaire, and he tried to create a network which was really explicitly about pushing his own political agenda. And I think most people know what that is. Um, what was surprising about this was this was really one of the first major attempts to try to not um, focus on trying to bring in as wide an audience as possible, but actually bring in just a small amount, try and corner the market of something. And Fox was not only successful in pushing a conservative agenda, it was also revolutionary in uh, how much it appealed and how much money it made. So, you know, uh, there's a story from Jeff Cohen, who was the founder of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and one time very high up in CNN, he said he went to a meeting, a yearly meeting with his bosses, and he was expecting them to say, wow, what a great job you did, because the uh, revenues for CNN were a record high in the late 90s. But, but in fact, uh, they came in and said, what's going on? What's wrong? They were very stone-faced. And the reason was is that Fox was making enormous profits because they had cut the budget by not really doing any news and just allowing talking heads to talk constantly and push a conservative agenda. So it meant that Fox was actually making an extraordinary profit margin. And so ultimately, now we see uh, this model being rolled out all over the place. There's very few uh, outlets that are trying to appeal to a mass market. And we're seeing more and more appealing to a small section of the market, usually along political lines. MSNBC has become the sort of liberal version of Fox, and we've lost that idea of a sort of um, shared experience. We're all now in our little bubbles, and this is, of course, uh, only been accelerated with the rise of the internet and social media. Now we're, of course, all in these uh, little echo chambers uh, created by algorithms, uh, algorithms of oppression, as uh, Dr. Sophia Noble famously wrote about. Um, Ultimately, yeah, this fast-paced landscape means that we no longer really interact very much with uh, people with differing opinions. And not only that, because we're interacting online so much rather than face-to-face, -face, we often uh, are able to caricature people in ways that we wouldn't do if we were actually talking about them, thinking about our co-workers or our neighbours. In fact, they just become you know, uh, these monsters or these subhumans or a basket of deplorables, as Hillary Clinton uh, famously said. And so that's really the uh, that's really the sort of setting for all of these new uh, controversial issues like the 2016 election or the January 6th uprising or the COVID pandemic or there's, there's so many. I mean, we can even talk about Ukraine right now splitting uh, certain groups apart. And so ultimately, this is a really dangerous point because uh, groups like Facebook and Google, their algorithms, they know that controversy sells. There's a reason that all of the top videos on YouTube are things like Ben Shapiro destroys leftists or, you know, uh, you know, uh, that sort of thing is um, absolute gold for these uh, these companies because um, contention really sells for them. People are engaged at like uh, with uh, content like that. 
but ultimately it's highly deleterious for society. And this is the this is the era we're in, especially with the increasing economic polarization as well, with more and more people uh, struggling to make uh, mend, uh, make uh, <clears throat> ends meet, and more and more people becoming super wealthy, ostentatious uh, living. This is driving a lot of the resentment and uh, anger right now. And so ultimately, we're in a sort of political tinderbox, and there are just sparks flying all the time. And uh, these ones are just uh, new examples of this. And so clearly social media, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, big tech giants like Google and Facebook are playing into this, uh, making their algorithms in a way that, you know, people are not accessing, you know, multiple different outlets or perspectives. It's kind of creating uh, echo chambers where people fall into like groupthink. And like you said, you know, that's why some of the top videos on YouTube are of, you know, this person like Ben Shapiro destroying the left, for example. So that really kind of um, strikes emotion for people that will identify to that certain group of, you know, political ideology. Um, Nolan, what can you add for us about the role social media has played um, in creating these echo chambers? And I think you're on mute. So you want to unmute yourself? Yeah. Um yeah, social media has played a huge role. I wouldn't say they've, um, you know, con contributed um, to division or sort of bought into it. I would say that, you know, their whole business model is based upon division. Um, this is something we often forget. The, the internet could be anything, um, but the internet as we now know it in the United States, at least, and a lot of the, the Western world are, are platforms which are designed to engage users because the longer users are engaged, the more data they provide. And then that data can be analyzed and weaponized to predict or nudge human behavior. So it's very lucrative um, in that sense. The stuff that keeps users engaged, as Alan already sort of pointed out, is one information that confirms your bias. We like to be told we're right. And the internet allows us to customize our information world to be told we're right constantly. Um, but we also react to uh, fear and hate. So content that makes us have feelings of hate or fearful is the stuff we engage with most. So that stuff is privileged on these platforms. And so the case I would make about polarization in the United States to kind of um, piggyback on both Mickey and Alan here um, we're a polarized country because we have a caricature of our political opponents. We really don't understand each other in a lot of ways. We have this caricature that is displayed through entertainment media, explained through our very homogenous um, information base and ecosystem, but we really don't understand and know each other. And so, you know, you pointed out, um, you were talking about foreign policy earlier, uh, Minar, you know, we have an ahistorical conversation about Ukraine because we haven't had really a media system in the United States that's provided information or circles back to that information um, right now in the present. So no matter what side of you're on with this war is almost irrelevant to me if you don't actually have the facts. It's, it's tough to have a discussion with you, whether you support U.S. involvement, oppose, whatever it may be. Um, without that sort of information, it, it's tough to have dialogue. Um, during the pandemic, we saw this a lot, um, you know, uh, the CRT debate over critical race theory. You know, me and Mickey were sort of just amazed at how many people, both supporters and opponents, had no clue what critical race theory actually was as they were debating it. And one of the things Mickey and I spent a lot of time doing as we wrote this book through the pandemic 
um, was we tried to pay attention to media ecosystems that we traditionally disagree with because we want to get some sense of like what's going on in these spaces. And what we found oftentimes is that um, what we understood about these spaces and what people in these spaces understand about each other um, is really a character of the other side. Um, you know, if you looked at like um, the Virginia um, election for the governor, for example, a lot of leftist media thought it was all about CRT. But when you actually went into like the, the right wing or conservative media down there, it was really about parent control over schooling curriculum. And CRT wasn't like the central part of that. Um, parents thought they were being marginalized by teachers. And so it was it was a different debate. So it's not even necessarily that the two sides disagree. They totally don't even understand each other. And so I think this contributes to, to our polarization. As long as we have a character who's an easy person or organization to lampoon, we can continue to dehumanize them and be indecent to them because we don't recognize who they actually are. Whereas if you actually have to engage in dialogue and recognize the humanity in someone, you get a much more complex understanding of who, who folks are. And I think uh, to your to, to response to Alan, I, I think uh, this is why there's such a big war on new media right now. Because we see a lot of this new media programming, podcasts especially, but video shows and other things on YouTube, where people who would be portrayed as historically disagreeing in legacy media are having robust, constructive dialogue on things like the Joe Rogan podcast, the Bad Faith podcast. Um, we see this on shows like Rising or Breaking Points, which have tried to bring historically uh, groups that historically disagree together. So... And it's drawing audiences that are uh, on par with the same size as legacy media. So I think that's why we see such an attack on um, folks who are in this space, uh, including the folks here at Mint Press, is because the fact that they can actually have constructive dialogue and understand each other, that's a real threat to the business model of legacy media, which is all about dividing and attacking each other versus actually trying to understand. That's a very good point. I mean, you know, you don't have to agree with everything that like Joe Rogan, for example, uh, talked about on his podcast, but he actually brought in multiple people from different backgrounds to actually have this sort of discussion. And it's like issues and discussions and topics that the majority of people are probably already having at home, but they're not finding those conversations within corporate media because the conversations are so polarized. Um, so, you know, just going off of that point, one of the most contentious subjects in the last two years that somewhat is still ongoing despite the pandemic, um, you know, in its endemic stage is the COVID pandemic and the debate about what is the correct response to it. I mean, we've seen people from all different sides of the political spectrum deplatformed, attacked as anti-science, you know, lunatics, or on the other side of it, shills for big pharma, depending on their opinion on the proper response. This seems obviously very problematic. Um, and it seems like the messaging in the way that the pandemic in general was presented on like the responses from Anthony Fauci, whether it was like on the efficacy of masks or vaccines played a huge role in causing a lot of confusion, misunderstanding and misinformation. Um, Mickey, how has the approach to handling messaging during the pandemic um, been to play a role in this kind of polarization surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic specifically? Yeah, Menard, thanks for articulating that. <clears throat> I think it's really 
it's actually alarming uh, given how much we've studied, you know, media and looked at contentious issues, particularly at Project Censored, whether they're unanswered questions about 9-11 or actual election fraud, not non-existent voter fraud, um, foreign policy forays, whether they be Syria, Libya, Ukraine from 2014. Um, you know, we've, we've really kind of looked at what we see in a lot of those areas of controversy is a breakdown of the ability to agree to disagree or to hear differing perspectives, quite literally. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, the, the COVID-19 uh, virus, as it were, is, pretty, is a, a pretty interesting metaphor for the problem of the media, the corporate media virus. And the inoculation to it is critical media literacy, not censorship and deplatforming, not name calling and distortion of opponents' views, but actually hearing them out. Joe Rogan committed the great sin of listening to other experts on areas that were basically ostracized from the professional sort of uh, medical uh, industrial complex, if you will, big pharma. Um, let's not forget, you can't watch cable TV or any of these major news sites without being bombarded with advertisements from big pharma, almost every commercial break, certainly Pfizer chief among them. And when you look at the revolving door and the regulatory capture between these huge companies and regulatory agencies, the CDC, the FDA, etc., one would think that anyone on the left would have a healthy degree of skepticism against technocracy and corporate oligarchies controlling narratives about something so important as public health. Mm. Um, one of the big problems we see is when people talk about it's the science. Well, that's a silly statement because science is a critical thought process of discovery and constant challenging. Um, it's not this is right, that's wrong, no matter what, forever. And what we see is when the same groups or same corporations are, quote, in charge of the science, the ones that are also massively profiting from it and also influencing what narratives are boosted through corporate media, we have a real serious critical media literacy challenge at our at our feet here. Um, you know, I know that Mint Press also had the audacity, Dan Cohen, to cover the anti-mandate rally in Washington, D.C. Uh, about vaccine mandates and also bothered to send people, you know, actually bothered to go to the trucker convoy in Canada and actually talk to people who were involved in it and what they were about. And in both situations, this is what journalism is required to do and why we need it in a supposed democratic republic. We need to have the issues dis deconstructed. We need to have them disentangled. We also need to have dots connected, right? We need to have people there asking questions, covering these, these difficult subjects. But we, we, what we don't need is more demonization and lampooning of the other without actually ever bothering to hear what the other has been saying. Back to what both Nolan and Alan had said, it's a characterization. There's a ritual characterization of the other, absent actual intellectual curiosity and investigation. So what we're seeing around a lot of these, um, these dominant COVID narratives is a complete breakdown of a code of ethics in journalism. Um, the sourcing has been obscured or only skewed to one side. Um, the reporting that's been done, ironically, in the name of not harming people is actually causing different kinds of harm in our community where we're ostracizing people for no actual scientifically valid reason. Um, these are the things that we need journalism to help us understand. Instead, what we've seen with corporate media and establishment legacy media in the United States is they are the biggest mouthpiece of propaganda 
for these interest groups, and it becomes nearly impossible. It becomes near heresy to bother to even ask critical questions that journalists should ask. And so I, and again, this isn't about whether I agree with the people that are at these rallies or at these protests. Exactly. And that's another thing I think that the left is, you know, does, is forgetting that when left journalists are covering anti-imperialist protests or anti-war protests, there's this idea that they're on the same team. So now we're back to that us them mentality. Um, just because somebody has a, a different value ranking hierarchy about a certain issue than someone else doesn't mean they don't still share some of the same values. They just don't necessarily see them the same in these situations. You can be pro-vaccine and anti-mandate. I hope nobody's head exploded. Um, <laughs> this is the kind of thing that becomes very difficult and nuanced to, to discuss in the corporate media because it's it's it, it doesn't fit into their preordained us them mentalities. Right. And then I think you make such an important point is that just because we went to that rally doesn't mean that we agree with everybody at that rally. And that's the whole point of journalism is like we can go and talk to people and like hear them out and hear what they have to say and what exactly is their perspective. And we'll actually learn in that process that we probably have more in common than the media uh, would like us to, to think. Um, you know, and when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, both sides, whether it's, you know, pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine or people who support wearing masks or don't support wearing masks or people who don't support mandates or that do support mandates, there are good arguments on both sides um, that can be made. And most people are probably, you know, if they actually were able to have these healthy conversations, could probably agree on some things to a certain point, but we're not even allowed to have those kinds of conversations. Um, and it kind of separates people into like groupthink and like, you know, if into to two major categories and they're just at each other's throat, they're just bumping heads. Uh, constantly in the conversation. So, um, you know, Nolan, um, at the end of your um, latest book, you lay out a checklist of suggestions for people who are actually having a discussion, uh, perhaps even uncomfortable ones, whether it's surrounding COVID-19 pandemic response or whatever it is. Could you give us a few tips on how to do that uh, effectively? For sure. We, we start out the book, I mean, the book goes through three parts, and we start out... Um, with a discussion about constructive dialogue. So how can we be constructive versus destructive? And so before um, I even get into tips on how you can be constructive, I like to point out behaviorisms that are destructive. If you um, really wanna change someone's viewpoint, and there's good reason to in a democracy, we need you know majority rule. So we have to kind of build some consensus. So if you wanna reach out to people and change their mind, what typically doesn't work is insulting them, lampooning them, censoring them, uh, laughing at them, mocking them, uh, being condescending. All these behaviorisms are not effective uh, forms of constructive dialogue. So in, in the text, we talk about ways where you can be constructive. Um, there's a lot you can do at a personal level. Um, so becoming someone who has credibility is really key as well. So showing time and time again that you have a commitment to principles, specifically principles of truth, regardless of the political implications of it. Then you become someone who's trusted. Folks may disagree with you, but they at least know that you're someone who will give a fair, good faith analysis. Um, so credibility is really important. And I think this gets into, you keep, uh, we keep talking about COVID here. 
Um, so many professional organizations or credentialed elites are fixated on trying to get people to believe them rather than ask what I think is a more important question is why don't people have faith in you? Why don't they have faith in the pharmaceutical industry? Why don't they have faith in the legacy media? Why do they not have faith in the political class? Is there possibly something you've done, say, over the last 50 years um, that leads people to not have faith in you? That's a more important kind of question to answer. How do you rebuild that credibility? So we talk about um, that in the text. We also talk about ways in which one becomes a critical thinker. Um, that is, they let the evidence kind of guide them. They go where the evidence is. They ask the right questions. They only build arguments if it's supported by evidence. And when they look at somebody else's argument, they don't base their opinion of that argument on how good it makes them feel or their political side. They look at the evidence behind it. So if someone makes, a, makes an argument um, that you disagree with, the response should not be insulting them. Instead, it should be a question like, hey, I've never heard that argument before. What evidence do you have to support that? It could end up that you learned something you didn't know. It could end up that you've drawn their attention to the fact that they're making baseless claims. Either way, you're engaging in this critical thinking process. So that's the second part of the text that we talk about. And then the third part of the text, uh, we get into critical media literacy. That is, what is the evidence we are using in these conversations? So um, Manar, you've spoken a lot about how we're having these um, debates in our family and things like that. Sometimes rather than trying to get consensus at the dinner table, we should interrogate where people are getting their evidence. Things like entertainment media, like film and streaming television shows, they often have pretty narrow representations or oversimplifications or racist and sexist tropes that we internalize and then we think are real. We, we, we believe these characters are out there. Um, our news media, as Alan pointed out, often appeals to uh, these, these biases of the other side. Um, they either make up information or they leave out critical information. So you may have a false or incomplete understanding of something that you're now using as the basis to make an argument. So sometimes the discussion needs to go to, well, what evidence do we actually have here? What are we talking about before we can draw conclusions? And the critical media literacy portion of the text really gets into that, about how can we start to analyze the media that informs so much of our understanding of the world? Well, and I feel like, you know, step one was like, don't insult each other. I felt like that was something that we learned like in kindergarten, right? Like we learned this, like when you're talking to your friends, you don't call them names, you don't hit them, you don't insult them, you don't push them away. We want to create like a strong, healthy bond between people. And it's almost like now we have these people as adults and they there's like this inability to be able to have constructive conversations without reacting in such an emotional way that brings us back to just kind of acting like a child. Um, and, you know, throughout the past two years, and even before that, just growing up in a post 9-11 world, right? In a post 9-11 world, whether it was 9-11, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, the wars in Syria, Libya, the expansion of like US empire, um, the rise of Trump and, you know, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, the media has been, you know, is always pushing one certain narrative um, that suits the military industrial complex, that suits the, you know, techno techno technocracy, I can never pronounce that word correctly, and the, the oligarchic class. And yet in these times, it's almost like people have forgotten that who the media currently works for, who the legacy media works for. And so they turn to the corporate media for their sourcing. 
on certain topics when they don't have an alternative. Why do you think that is, Alan? Sorry, let me just unmute myself there. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the last few years, we've seen, as we've been talking about the rise of like super polarized content, as somebody who's kind of very much on the sort of pro-vaccine, pro-mask mandate edge, I am quite disconcerted by the amount of people who seem to be drawing, almost reveling in the uh, the death count going up and up. There are all sorts of websites which, uh, you know, collect data about people who've recently died in the pandemic and then share their posts, you know, uh, about how they didn't believe it was real or how they, uh, you know, were Trump voters. And it reminds me very much of what happened last winter in the Texas power outage, where Dem- like Democrats or people who lean blue were mocking people who were dying in red states, particularly in Texas, saying, well, the implication was, you know, well, you voted Republican, you got what you deserved. You know, there's a lot of problems with that. I mean, first of all, most people in Texas didn't vote for the Republicans. But, you know, even if you did vote for Ted Cruz, does that mean you deserve to freeze to death? Does that mean you, you know, um, you know, deserve the death penalty? And so I just want to piggyback on what um, Nolan was saying. If I was asked, you know, if there's any tips I would have, I think, first of all, you have to come from a place of empathy and understanding when you're actually having conversations with other people. You really got to, before you go into a conversation, you've got to say, you know, ask yourself, what are you really trying to do here? Are you trying to understand people or are you doing it for another reason? Are you trying to convince them or not? Not only that is um, the platforms that we're on right now really do not help. It's very difficult to uh, do anything but dunk on somebody in 280 characters or in a one minute TikTok video. It's really not easy to actually get that sort of level of uh, trust and understanding going. Ultimately, we've really lost our, you know, our concept of face-to-face communication. There's a great book written a while back called Bowling Alone. I think it was by Robert Putnam. And he talks about how in the 1960s and 70s, we had an enormous amount of face-to-face communications in our churches or our unions or in our local community association. In the 1960s, one of the most popular things to do in the U.S. was to go bowling with your te- with your team, your pals, your uh, extended family, uh, your neighbors, your union, whatever. But now, uh, when he wrote the book, he found that uh, bowling is pretty much a solitary sport. People do it on their own. They don't talk to anyone. And that was really a metaphor for what's happened in the United States, where we have very little face-to-face communication with people who aren't in our immediate family or perhaps like really, you know, right there as co-workers. But even then, now that we're mostly working uh, from home, that's even, you know, even that's uh, cut down. And so ultimately, we don't have that sort of uh, connection with other people. It's very easy to um, get road rage, you know, because uh, we can see that jerk in his car is, you know, cutting us off. But if we actually saw that that jerk was like a little old lady who was maybe partially sighted, maybe we'd give her a little bit more slack. And that's really playing out worldwide in the era of social media um i think basically another good tip would just be simply try not interrupting people give people enough time to finish what they're saying and then you can start to speak even if that just means that um, you won't react out of anger or snap back i think that's a pretty uh, a good tip for anybody just you know don't interrupt people and i think it's also completely fine to just decide you don't want to have this discussion i mean ask yourself 
if you're at Thanksgiving with the dinner table, is it really going to lead to something constructive to snap back at your relatives? Are there benefits to you opening your mouth here or will it make things worse? Are you really going to convince them? And do you have the mental energy to do so? So, you know, I think, frankly, uh, you know, sometimes just not having that discussion might be better for you if you don't really have uh, the, uh, the energy to do so. And um, I don't want to make discuss- uh, assumptions about people's political uh, leanings here, but as people, I expect a certain political disposition here. We're never really going to have uh, the uh, huge centers of power on our side. And what that means is the only way we can really incite change and change the country and almost take power is going to be through people power. And that's going to require convincing tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Americans. And you don't really do that by shouting at them and essentially, you know, condemning them. And that's really quite self-defeating. There's this old, you know, phrase that, you know, people in cults look for traitors, where there's you know, people in movements look for converts. And that's really what's going on here. You have to try and build a movement rather than a cult, try and call people in and not call them out. Well, and I think the the role of, you know, mainstream corporate media and then through uh, social media tech giants continuously driving this sort of fear and echo chambers, people are operating from a place of stress and anxiety at all times. And so, you know, their egos are being boosted constantly and it becomes about themselves rather than about, you know, having compassion or observing the conversation and kind of putting their themselves outside of that. And so to be able to unite on a broader front, like we really have to slow down and detach from social media. Um, and like, I'll just use myself as an example. I, I told Nikki this, <laughs> I've taken on meditating for the last um, six months, and it has completely changed my life. It has increased my compassion for other people and allowed me to take myself out of conversations and more when I'm having a conversation to be, you know, to really just be an observer and to listen wholeheartedly with my heart rather than push my agenda or push my ideas. And it's really about listening. And so, Nolan, I know that you and both you, you and Mickey talk about this a lot, but, but, you know, social media is kind of pushing us to live in a constant state of fear and anxiety. I mean, we're going at a million miles per hour. There's so many, you know, health effects that are taking place that affects people's mental health. You know, just talk to me about the whole, you know, just, just the entirety of social media pushing people to, to live out of this area of fear and anxiety. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a great uh, question because it, it gets to, to something we mentioned in the book and connects to sort of what we talked about with, with polarization thus far. Um, one, one of the things, you know, I've, I've noticed, and Mickey and I talked a lot about this when writing the text, uh, when you talk to someone who leans left, oftentimes they can rightly point out all of the misinformation and hyperbolic um, narratives on the right. When you talk to someone on, right, on the right, they can do the same for the left. But it's rare we sort of look at our own media ecosystem and how we give into these um, behaviorisms. So you talked about like during COVID, I can remember, you know, a lot of a lot of conservatives supported uh, my interviews and the things I was writing because I was a skeptic of Russiagate. Um, you know, I, I knew that this stuff was being amplified in, in a way that was problematic. And, you know, Democrats sort of stopped interviewing me, and invited me on their podcasts um, at that time. 
no names need to be given. But um, ironically, though, when I would have the same discussions, the same conservatives about like QAnon or the lack of evidence was stop the steal, then all of a sudden, you know, we, we couldn't, uh, they didn't see that in their own ecosystem. And so what we kind of point out in the text is as much as, as sometimes gratifying as it is, is pointing out the problems with your ideological opponent, um, there's also a lot you can do internally with yourself. And this connects back to the, your social media question, which is, sure, the algorithms do give you information that confirms your view. They do give you information that confirms uh, your ideological bias. Um, but you often choose a lot of the people you follow. You decide what websites to go to. Are you spending your time toiling away confirming your pre-existing view? And if so, that is problematic, not only because it, it gives us very little space to find consensus, it's also problematic because a lot of this content is designed in a way to appeal to your, your uh, feelings of hate and fear, as we talked about. And so you're constantly on edge. You're constantly outraged, right? Um, this this pre, predates social media as well. I mean, we, we talked about 9-11, right? Conservatives and the, the American public were constantly getting inundated with this Islamic phobic narratives, right? Everything was about to be a terrorist attack. Everything was a heightened sense of, a sense of terrorism. Um, in a lot of ways, our, our news media amplifies that same thing, particularly during the, the Trump era, right? Every Trump tweet was like the most horrific thing that was going to destroy the country. Um, the same thing was true with COVID. Um, you're, to your point, Menar, the human brain can only take so much. Our fight or flight um, instincts cannot be constant. Uh, we get exhausted and we get exhausted. We, we, we refrain from using our critical thinking skills. We engage less. We go to knee-jerk reactions. And so things like meditation, um, taking a break, turning off this information that is only toxic, not beneficial to you, these are ways you can improve your critical thinking skills outside of learning actual like theorems and things like that. And I want to talk about cancel culture just because, you know, this is affecting the left. (laughs) It's affecting the left. And it's almost as if the very people who championed, you know, uh, our First Amendment rights are now champion, championing uh, cancel culture. And I think uh, Alan and Mickey are both, you know, two people that can kind of discuss this. But Mickey, can you tell us a little bit about the history of cancel culture and how you're seeing it play out right now within the liberal press? Yeah, cancel culture is not new, just like fake news wasn't new. Yeah. Um, right. Um, different names, different weaponized phrases. Just to dovetail really quickly from what Nolan was just saying about the listening and Alan's point to empathy, and I'm, I'm going to connect that here to this so-called current phenomenon. You know, we you talk about meditation. We 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 quote the now late great Thich Nhat Hanh in the book. Um, we cite philosophers like Daniel Dennett um, who talk about um, you know an active kind of listening and what it means and gives literally gives steps about what it means to be an active listener. You know, many, many as, and again, as scholars in this field have put, most people don't listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And so, but you can't, it's difficult to um, actually even get into the possibility of understanding something. If you're not going to let somebody have the conversation in the first place, or you're not going to have them have their say as Alan just put moments ago about the culture of interruption. We're constantly being interrupted in our culture, in our society, 
media itself is a great interruption and distraction into our lives in a in a diff, in a metaphorical way this this way literally this translates individually into us talking over each other not wanting to hear from people oh not wanting to hear from people well then that's that's our schadenfreude humilitainment moment and anti-social media gives us every opportunity to shout and shake fists, but never actually bother to listen with the intent to understand. And sort of a more radical um, manifestation of that is canceling people's right to have a view that's different or that's unpopular. Now, look, I'm not talking about speech that's already considered illegal, like, right? And we could argue about hate speech and its definition and its gray nebulous areas, but the point is, is that we do have courts and we do have laws that are certainly different in the UK than they are here in the United States and in other parts of the world. But we have mechanisms to mitigate or mediate these kinds of differences. And when you have sort of like the mob mentality of shutting down other people, you know, what's going on there is you're giving people an opportunity to use those incidents as points of wedge or division rather than engaging in the actual art of conversation and disagreement which is I want to hear exactly why this person is saying what they're saying and where they're getting this information. So we have the ability to understand, comprehend, deconstruct, and then after we think we have it right, according to what the person said, we, we, we want them to, you know, in fact, we almost want to be able to articulate what someone else we disagree with says better than they did, right? So that they get this sense that we do want to get what they're saying. And then we can begin the debunking. Then, you know, once we sort of build some, again, this communication is about building bridges, not walls. And I know some folks, especially on the left, they were, there's no bridge to the Nazis. <laughs> okay. Um, there's no bridge, fill in the blank. There's no bridge to the anti-vaxxer. What actually is the anti-vaxxer? You know, I mean, in California, we came to understand that people who opposed mandatory vaccination were overwhelmingly in favor of vaccination for schools. They just didn't want it connected to people's right to get an education. That's a very different view than the anti-science flat earther moron over there that just doesn't get it and is dangering everybody. But you never know that if you don't talk to people. Exactly. And you don't know that if while you're talking to people, you don't wait to listen to what they're actually saying, not what social media depicts it, not how corporate media characterize it and projects it back out to respective audiences to get advertise, get eyeballs to advertisers. So once again, you know, and we cite interesting people in the book, Dan Kavalik being one of them, who has a book called Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. And I know Dan angered a lot of people on the left with that book. But a lot of those folks, I'm, I don't know if they actually read the whole book. Um, and you can disagree with Dan and still get the overall point, right? Is that we all make mistakes. We, we all don't know everything. As Nolan just wisely pointed out, we can't constantly be in outrage mode. We can't constantly be in flight or fight mode. Um, and, and if we are in those modes, it makes us less likely to be empathetic, less likely not only to articulate our own views, but far less likely to reasonably understand what someone else is actually doing and saying. Right. And so I think that there's been a, a sort of cancel culture run amok. And I know I've gotten a lot of, of, of negative feedback around these kinds of statements from the left as that people say that, well, we don't need to hear from these people. We already know what they're saying. Well, I mean, if that's the case, isn't that what most of these people are already saying about us? Notice how that factors into the hyperpartisan, the I'm right, you're wrong, no matter what dynamic. 
And again, that that that's no way to sort of operate within a supposedly free culture or society. And I think the biggest danger that's been articulated by Chris Hedges and others is that cancel culture particularly has a way of coming back to bite the left itself. When we see the people celebrating the deplatforming of right wing folks, um, you know, again, there's going to be a huge backlash, as Mint Press knows firsthand. There's going to be a huge backlash against many groups on the left fighting for social justice issues. So we need to be really careful about um, the slippery slope of cancel culture, and we need to be really careful about understanding what free speech is and isn't. Alan, can you? Did you want to add anything to that to those points? Um, I think Mickey covered a lot of stuff. I, I'll, I suppose I can say a little bit. I'll take it from a different angle. Um, I guess it's interesting to see what people consider cancel culture and what they don't consider it. You know, uh, it's very unpopular to say this right now, given Russia's brazenly illegal invasion that happened not so long ago. But we're seeing, you know, uh, Russian podcasts cut from Spotify. We're seeing, you know, a Russia cut off from, you know, Google, you know, uh, We've seen Russian orchestra conductors fired from their jobs in Germany because they, you know, basically they were Russian and they refused to immediately denounce Putin. We've seen uh, Russian literature courses at the University of Milan cancelled. Dostoevsky, you can't teach him anymore because he was a Russian from the 19th century, let's uh, remember. And so what I'm saying here is, you know, you can oppose, uh, you know, uh, political actions or, you know, war without having to go to this uh, crazy extreme. But ultimately, nobody's talking about that as cancel culture. What they tend to mean is very powerful people um, facing significant, sometimes quite minor pushback, like, for instance, you know, uh, columnists at the New York Times whose mentions on social media are full of people for once, for the first time, telling them that they're an idiot and their takes are stupid. But uh, ultimately, people like Palestinians have been subject to cancel culture for years, if not decades. I mean, if we just look at the amount of uh, Middle Eastern journalists who are being uh, purged from uh, European uh, media right now because they've found something that, you know, uh, supported Palestine or something like that, it really is uh, incredible. So ultimately, I think it's very... Everybody understands cancel culture in a different way. And as Mickey said, the real powerful, uh, you know, uh, the real powerful state canceling of individuals or organizations tends to uh, focus on anti-war, anti-imperialist groups who are trying to challenge the status quo. Uh, the obvious example of this is McCarthyism, which went on for decades in the United States and completely changed the landscape. And so ultimately, yeah, um, it's interesting how we how we think about cancel culture, this sort of thing has been going on for a long time. I think, again, as we've been talking for quite a while now, the era of social media is making this uh, more extreme because people are not really understanding what's going on in uh, the other part of America or the other part of the uh, political system. So really, we're, we're at a point where pretty much everybody seems to support, you know, getting the guillotines out metaphorically. I, that's a that's a great metaphor. I, I want to um, add to that because I, I think uh, this circles back around between the, the Mickey and Alan's comments here. Um, having a much broader definition of cancel culture is something we we bring up in the text. I mean, in the United States context, you you can't ignore how women and people of color and religious and ethnic minorities have been uh, the victims of so called cancel culture uh, throughout its history. So one of the, the concerns I, I hear from, from Alan and, and Mickey, and I, and I believe Manar and myself share this, um, 
the problem isn't necessarily that sometimes these are ideologies that I wish weren't erased. Like I wish white supremacy could be erased. I wish patriarchy could be erased. I wish the imperialist notions of nationalism could be erased. Um, but what concerns me is I, I want to join people in that fight. But what concerns me is I don't want to empower unaccountable, undemocratic institutions such as big tech to do that work because historically unaccountable big corporations have used that power to censor anything that threatens their interests. And I think Alan and Mickey have talked about how anybody who threatens their imperialism um, threatens their interests. Anybody who threatens um, their profit motive threatens their interests. Um, they've also used that to, to weaponize against, again, groups like women and people of color. Let's, let's not forget fighting for um, access to equal rights within the history of the United States. Some of the biggest purveyors of inequities were corporations, and it took massive pressure on government to get government to do something about these institutions to be more inclusive. So this is why I say it's, it's kind of a fool's errand. People think that they're this empowered uh, generation that's the most woke ever, and they're using digital tools to hold powerful people accountable. This is straight up a delusion of power. In reality, what's happening is you're empowering unaccountable, undemocratic institutions to decide what's true, what's false, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable speech. And I would not have a historical view of that. That will come back to bite people, particularly those who are most vulnerable, women, people of color, and those in the progressive left. And so we have to wrap up this conversation, but I just want to thank all three of you for being a part of this important uh, you know, conversation surrounding critical thinking, cancel culture, and how to unite on a broader uh, you know, field in the age of so much polarization. Um, at MIT Press, you know, we try to be a platform that encourages dialogue. <laughs> and even within our own staff, when there's disagreements, we always try to engage with each other and make sure that people feel heard and that their perspectives are allowed to be uh, published. Because what, what is the point of upholding your First Amendment when you're blocking other people out of the conversation? So we want to create um, that environment at MIT Press, and we hope that that echoes too through our journalism and through these podcasts so that we can continue to have uh, people from different perspectives and political views to be able to have that conversation. And I think that's why it's so important to be nonpartisan. Um, and so many outlets, they push a certain political ideology. You know, for us, it's just about holding the establishment accountable, watchdog journalism, and that should be really it. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate all of you for coming on today. And uh, until next week, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Vinar. Honor to be here. Thank you.